open to the book of Colossians. That's where we're going. We are six weeks into our series in Colossians, and we've made it all the way to the middle of chapter two. We're flying through this thing, right? Actually, we're taking our time, and we are savoring every bite of Colossians. The book of Colossians, I like to compare it to an exquisite seven-course meal, all right? This is not drive-through fast food. This is like really, really scrumptious stuff. We're going to chew on every bite, and we're going to enjoy it. And I know you've been having that experience. I've heard from you that Colossians is impacting you, and you're savoring it, and you're reading it, and it's changing your life. And all of that is music to a pastor's ears. So thank you for that. Today, we come finally to the passage that gets us to the heart of Paul's concern for the Colossians. He was worried about them. And so if you look in your Bible at chapter 2, verses 8 through 19, that's where we're going to spend our time today. And as we're getting ready to read that, Here is the thing that you need to know. Just because a truth claim sounds good does not necessarily mean that it is good or true for that matter, right? You can talk back to me. If you don't like that, just say, no, that's dumb. What are you talking about? Talk back. Just because a truth claim sounds good or compelling does not mean that it is good or true. And Jesus wants to turn you into a discerning Christian. That's the kind of Christian Jesus is creating. He wants to turn you into the kind of Christian who can tell the difference between good ideas and bad ideas, between things that are true and things that are false. We're living, uh, we're living in an age where we are literally inundated with messaging, right? Ideas and opinions and worldview claims and truth claims, and they come at us in all kinds of different forms of media. They're coming at us through blog posts and uh, Instagram feeds and podcasts and even books. Remember those when we read books back in the day, right? And they're, and they're coming at us constantly, all of this messaging of all different kinds. People are making all kinds of claims about ultimate reality, the meaning of life. Why are we here right and wrong? And many of those claims sound really compelling. But just because they're compelling doesn't make them true. Are you a discerning Christian? Are you a Christian who's growing in the ability to discern between true and false, right and wrong, good and bad? That's what Paul's after in Colossians 2, verse 8. Will you read it with me together this morning? It'll also be on the screen above me. Here's how Paul says it. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive, by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementals of the world, and not according to Christ. You know, it's interesting. You've probably noticed that when we get to this part of the book of Colossians, Paul's tone has changed. 
And suddenly Paul sounds kind of intense, right? For so much of the book of Colossians, Paul was really encouraging. He had so many compliments to give to the Colossians, but then we turn to chapter 2, verse 8, and suddenly Paul's tone is very different, and it's almost as if Paul is sounding intense, and he is intense. This passage, chapter 2, verse 8, stretching into verse 19, is the only part of Colossians where the tone is actually negative. And that's because the church in Colossae was being threatened. And Paul had heard about it. There was a false teaching that had crept in, and it was causing the believers to doubt their salvation, to doubt that they had everything that they needed in Christ. It was threatening them. And because Paul was a wonderful pastor and he loved the church, he wrote to them, and he, at this point in the letter, he amps up the intensity a little bit, right? He matches intensity with intensity. And I'm going to be a little bit more intense today. And you're going to be like, where's the Adam who just hugs me all the time? He seems to be more intense. I'm going to be a little bit more intense because Paul is intense and because this passage really, really matters. Right? Amen. You know, Paul, you know what he says to them? He says, you know what? You need to watch out. You need to watch out. You need to be on your guard. Those first couple of words of verse 8, see to it, they translate a verb, the Greek verb, blepo, and it basically means to look carefully, to be observant, to be on your guard, to, to be watchful. There's a threat out there, brother and sister in Christ. Paul says, Christian, you need to, you need to watch out. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you begin to realize maybe that that something is threatening you and you start to realize that your senses go on high alert, right? Your, 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 your sight and your hearing and your, all your senses kick into overdrive. I remember one time about a year ago, I had to come down to the church really late at night, like at 1130, because our church alarm was going off, okay? So we, we pay for this security system, and, and they, what they do is when the alarm goes off, they have a list of people on, and that they call to say, hey, your alarm is going off, and for some reason, I'm on that list. I have no idea why, okay? But I, at 11.30, my phone rings, and it's the person from the security company. She says, hey, uh, you know, the, the alarm is going off. Such and such door has been opened. I can either call the police or you can go down there. I was like, what? And so I don't even know why I'm on this list. I think I'm number five. I think it goes in order of like big guys to little guys. So like the first guy's Gary Gibson or something. So I'm like, uh, I want to save money. So I decided in my brilliance, I'm going to come down to the church at 1130, right? And when I got, when I drove into the parking lot, the building was pitch black. There was no one in here. So then I made the brilliant decision. I was like, I'm not going to turn on any lights when I get in the building. Yeah, you're like, what are you thinking? I didn't, I realized if I turn on a light, then whoever's in there with the knife, they're going to know right where I am, you know? <laughs> so I come into the church, I leave the lights off. Now imagine this building pitch black, all right? And I'm walking around this building and my hair was on edge. I could smell everything, believe me. I could smell the coffee you spilled the Sunday before in the sanctuary. I'm walking around the building. Now, at the 9 o'clock, I didn't finish the story. I just stopped right there. And people were mad at me. They were like, what happened? Nothing happened. It was a false alarm. There was no one even in the building, right? 
But here's the point. You know what Paul is saying to you? He's saying, Christian, that's exactly how you need to live your life. You need to live your life with your senses in high gear. You need to watch out. Why? Why would Paul be intense like this? Why would he warn them? Because Paul knows that there are teachings and there are teachers in Colossae who want to take the Colossians captive. Did you notice that in verse 8? They want to kidnap people and carry them away from Christ. That word, take you captive, it's super vivid. It comes from the world of slave traders where during times of war, people would take people captive. They would kidnap them literally and they would sell them into slavery. And so Paul draws on this extremely vivid imagery because he wants Christian men and women to understand that there are actually teachers out there and false teachings that are out to take you captive and carry you away from Jesus Christ. And so Paul, in this moment, and in this moment only, he gets a little bit intense because he loves the church. He loves the church, right? Someone was out to take the Colossians captive Paul said something very similar up in verse 4. Did you notice this last week? In chapter 2, verse 4, he said, I'm saying all this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Paul believes there are people out there and they make truth claims and those claims are really compelling and they sound so plausible, but they're, but they're actually deluded. They're out to deceive Christians. And so Paul says, you need to become a Christian who's discerning, a discerning kind of a Christian. You know, sometimes the most dangerous teachings that are out there are the ones that are really compelling and plausible, especially when it's someone who claims that they're speaking for God. Several years ago now, there was a book that was released called A New Kind of Christian. This book was written by a pastor named Brian McLaren. And right when it released, it was really popular. Lots of Christian people read the book. And there was a reason why it was popular. Brian is really winsome. He's a great writer. He's a gifted communicator. He's generous. And, and in the way he writes, it sounds so compelling. He puts his arguments together well. And in this book, it's a fable. It's a story about a pastor who, be, who begins to burn out, and he begins to doubt the faith, the historic Christian faith that he inherited. So he strikes up a friendship with a local high school teacher, and this teacher has also left the ministry, and he's now teaching science at a local high school. And this teacher now becomes this pastor's guide, and he leads him into more of a post-modern way of thinking about truth and what it means to be a Christian. And one of the things that happened is that as church leaders read this book, they started to get a little nervous about what Brian was actually saying, and they started to wonder, is Brian suggesting a new kind of Christian, or is he actually suggesting a new kind of Christianity, which he was? So four years later, he wrote another book called A New Kind of Christianity, and in that book, he actually laid out all of his beliefs about the Bible, about God, and what happened was a bunch of people started to realize this is nowhere near historic, biblical, gospel-centered Christianity. He threw away the cross. He threw away the sin of any kind. He questioned the deity of Christ. And the problem is many Christians read that book, and it, and it kidnapped them, and it carried them away from Christ and from historic Christianity. 
you know, River West, that there is no substitute for your own personal ability to discern truth from falsehood. Amen? Amen? There's no personal. Now, you get to be a part of a church family where we work on this together. Praise God. That's beautiful. But Jesus wants to turn you into a more discerning Christian because he loves you. Because he loves you. So does Paul. And that's why Paul writes. And what I want to do today is I want to take this passage that lies before us now, 9, stretching into verse 19. I'm going to break it down into three questions that you can ask. And I'd like you to write these down because I want you to take these with you. These are uh, three questions that we get from Paul that you can ask every time you read a book or listen to a podcast or read a blog post or fire up the Instagram feed. Questions that you can ask to discern, is this teaching true and good and biblical or is it false and troublesome and dangerous? And then at the very end, I'm going to tell you something amazing about what Jesus is doing in our church right now. Here's question number one. Think about this. Write it down. Take it with you today. Does this claim undermine in any way the supremacy of Christ? Does this teaching, does this book, does this message, does this podcast in any way undermine the absolute sufficiency of Christ? So for Paul, this is where it always starts. It always starts with Christ. Criteria number one, is Christ being exalted? Is Christ being adored? Is Christ being lifted up? Is Christ being seen as absolutely supreme and totally sufficient for salvation? And if Christ is not being lifted up in that way, the teaching is totally worthless, right? So clearly, Paul is talking about the big truth claims about ultimate reality. He's not talking about recipes for pudding and stuff like that, right? He's talking about the big stuff, the big teachings, the big claims that try to tell you something about ultimate reality, about the meaning of life. And Paul would say, does that claim undermine in any way the supremacy of Jesus Christ? So let me show it to you here. In verses 10 and 11, here's how, or 9 and 10, here's how Paul said it. First, at the end of 8, he said the problem with this false teaching is it's not according to Christ. Did you notice that? And then in verse 9, he continues, For in him that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul says, if you want to know anything about God, If you want to know anything about ultimate reality, if you want to know anything about ultimate truth or meaning, the way to learn about all of that is through Christ. Because in Christ is hidden all the fullness of deity. Everything that I need to know about God, I can find in the person of Jesus Christ, his one and only son. Amen? Is that not an amazing truth? And think about this. That is why at our church, every time that we gather, what do we do? We worship Christ. We lift up Christ. We preach Christ. We teach about Christ. We focus on him. And we're never going to stop doing it. We're never going to stop focusing on Christ. Because if you want to know anything about our world, anything about reality, anything about truth, the way to learn it is through Jesus Christ. 
this week, we got an amazing letter that was written to the staff and the, and the pastors from a couple in our church who are leaving us, sadly. They're moving to Spokane. By the way, if you move anywhere, a really nice thing is to write a letter. Otherwise, we're just like, where'd they go? They just moved. Okay. But anyway, you could write a letter, and these people, Jacob and Catherine Grady, who are wonderful people, and we're going to miss them so much, and they wrote, and Jacob is quite a wordsmith here, so I want to read a couple of the things that he wrote to the staff and the pastors. He talks about how initially it was really hard for them to get settled at River West. They'd come from Columbia, and they were working in a mission field down there, and so it was difficult to enter a sort of a suburban, affluent community. But what they were blown away by was the love of this community of Christ. People just embraced them. Isn't that beautiful? And here's what Jacob said. He said, the other and perhaps more compelling thing I witnessed on the first day and ever since was the unabashed declaration of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That focus on Christ without any edgy accoutrement. Good word, Jacob. I like just saying it. (laughs) It's so powerful. It's so refreshing. He says, I hope and pray this never changes. Well, you know what? It never will change. We are never going to stop focusing on Christ, and we're not going to try to be fancy. We're just going to lift up Jesus. Amen? Amen. Are you glad to be a part of a church like that? Amen. Thank you. If you're not, come talk to me afterwards. We'll talk about it. But, anyway, but I have to read this next paragraph because it's so great. And Jacob, it's, we all laughed as we heard this. He said, we'll miss so many things about River West, the alliterative three-point sermon, right? We'll miss Pastor Christopher's claw of conviction, you know? You know, I love that. When Christopher gets intense, the claw comes out. It's like, claw's out, God's out. Don't ever stop, Christopher. Bring it out, Right? He said, we'll miss Pastor Guy's stories and analogies that tie in something from the 60s and 70s. (laughs) We'll miss Adam's warm greetings and Eric's worship. And he goes on. It was really neat. Awesome. But here's the thing. Here's the point. What What are we most thankful for as we gather? We're thankful to be a part of a community that focuses on Christ. Because Paul says, if you want to know anything about God, you look to Christ. Now, did you notice that this verse actually sounds really familiar to a bunch of verses we've already read in chapter 1. So just look at chapter 1, verse 15, in the Christ hymn. I'm going to read a couple verses from there. Remember this verse? We didn't really get to unpack it that much. Where, what does Paul say? He says, he, that is Christ, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all, over all creation, Christ is the image of the invisible God. God is invisible. But so if you want to know something about what God is like, if you want to see an image of a, a physical representation of the attributes of God, you can look at Christ as he is portrayed in the Gospels and you can learn about God. How powerful is that? Well, did you notice chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I love that verse. Have you ever noticed that verse? What a statement. Paul says, would you like to know where God has hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? 
He's hidden them in Jesus Christ. So if a person wanted to grow in wisdom, and if a person wanted to grow in knowledge, a person wanted to grow in discernment, that person could focus on Christ, learn the gospel, become an expert in everything the Bible says about Jesus, and you will grow. And it also means if there's any teaching out there that in any way undermines the supremacy of Christ or suggests in any way that Jesus is not enough, that teaching is dangerous and wrong, and it's to be avoided, right? But here's the problem. Now, we have a problem, and the problem is this. Most false teachers are too smart to come out right and say, Christ is not enough, right? Most of them, because they're savvy, will talk about Jesus, and so it's hard to discern, and you have to stick around for a while and really listen. What are they saying about Jesus? What does this person actually believe about Jesus? I'm not sure I've figured it out yet, and so you wait and you wait, and eventually people will show their true colors. A couple years ago, uh, the Christian publishing industry went bonkers with the release of the book, The Shack, right? You remember this book? The Shack sold 20 million copies. Amazing. They just made a movie out of it. Tons of Christians read it. I know Christians who were deeply impacted by the book, but the book was actually pretty controversial. Did you know this? No? The book was a little bit controversial. Some people read it, and they thought, this has really helped me understand some of my suffering. Other people read it, and they thought, I'm not sure what I think about Paul White's theology about Christ and the gospel. So there was controversy around it. Well, what happened was just this last month, he wrote another book. And sadly, I am sad to say to you that this book is incredibly bad and heretical. And in his second book, which he titled Lies That We Believe About God, finally he tells us what he really believes. And it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. So it's a, the book is broken down into chapters, and each chapter is a lie, apparently, that we've been believing about God. So here's one of the chapters. This is a lie we believe about God, apparently. The very first chapter is that God is in control. And he says, that's a lie. God's not in control. And he actually thinks that he's helping God. He's like, like helping God out of a bad situation or something by writing that. He wrote another chapter. This is a lie that we believe. Sin separates us from God. He's saying that's actually a lie. Sin's not a problem. The one that is the hardest for me to tell you about is the chapter that's called You Need to Get Saved. Basically, what he says in that chapter is he says, you don't need to get saved because sin's not really a problem. There's no such thing as heaven. There's no such thing as hell. So here's why I'm talking about this. The problem is that people who read The Shack and were impacted are now going to read that book, and they're going to assume that that book is going to tell them something true about Christianity when, in fact, it's kidnapping them and leading them dangerously away from orthodox faith. And River West, my heart breaks because we need to become a church that's discerning so that we can help people who have, who have read that book and are wondering, we need to become wise, discerning followers of Christ, right? 
does this teaching undermine in any way the supremacy of Christ? Well, here's a second question that you could ask. This one's actually my favorite. I think it's really, really profound what Paul does next. Here's question two. Does this claim have the power to raise the dead? Does this teaching have the power to raise spiritually dead people to life, to new life? Because the gospel does. Did you know that? You're not, no one's talking back to me. <laughs> Did you know that the gospel, the gospel has the power to raise spiritually dead people to life? Did you know that? That's amazing. And that means that if you listen to anything or read anything and it doesn't have the power to raise the dead, it's worthless. It's worthless. On our retreat a couple weeks ago, the, the pastors and the, we, the lead team, we went away. Guy told you about this last week. And one of the things we did together at the beach was we talked about that theme, just how amazing the gospel is. The gospel is so wonderful. It's so powerful. The gospel has the power to bring about the new birth, raising people who are spiritually dead to new life. And we, we, we asked the question, what would, it, what would it be like? How would we be different if we lived and preached and, and led with that conviction like never before? How would our ministry change? And we talked about verses like Romans 1.16 where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. And we looked at a passage in 1 Peter. I'll put the verse up here where Peter compares the gospel to this imperishable seed that brings about new birth. He says, how is it that you were born again? You were born again through the imperishable seed of the word of God that went into your heart, the soil of your life, and it erupted and it brought about new spiritual life and you were born again. Brother and sister, is that book you're reading or that person you're listening to, does their message have the power to raise the dead? Because the gospel does. Everything that you need, you have already in the gospel of Christ, right? So let me show you where I get this from Paul. Turn back to Colossians 2, and I'm going to read to you verses 11 to 15, and I'm going to warn you, a little heads up here, this is the most difficult four verses in the book of Colossians. It's very complex, it's very condensed, and there are a bunch of really weird word pictures that we're not used to talking about. So I want to give you the interpretive key of this passage before I read it to you. The key of this passage is that the whole thing is about new spiritual life. It's about people being raised to new life. Every image in it is about that. Okay, read it with me now. And look for this language of, being transferred from death to life, as I read, starting in verse 11. In him, that is, in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Hello. If you wanted to learn about circumcision, you came to church on the right Sunday. Here we go. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Wow, what a passage. How unbelievably weird, right? Circumcision, and then he moves to baptism, and then he moves to our sins being nailed to the cross, and then he moves to this idea of Jesus leading spiritual the demonic in this open display of humiliation. And it just, the images come at you, come at you. But what you need to know is every single one of those images is a reminder that you have been raised to new spiritual life. That's why Paul says you were dead in verse 13. Did you see that? You were dead in your sins. I don't know about you, but when I hear that kind of language, I think I don't really relate to that because before I was a Christian, I didn't feel dead. You know, I didn't feel dead. And Paul says, yeah, but I'm talking about a spiritual death. And when you're spiritually dead, you don't even know it, right? You don't know it until God intervenes and raises you to new life. And so sometimes what happens is we can even take our own salvation for granted because we're not used to looking back and seeing it in these graphic terms that Paul talks about. Paul says, I was dead in my sins. I was literally hardened towards God. I wanted nothing to do with God. I was running away from God. It was a spiritual place of death, but God intervened in his grace and he raised me to new life. Brother and sister in Christ, if you love Jesus, you have been raised to new life. That is amazing. And that means that any teaching that doesn't have the power to raise the dead, you don't have any time for it, right? You should be asking the question, does this have the power to raise the dead? Because if it doesn't, it means nothing to me because I've been made alive. I'm alive in Christ. And all those images, they're true of me. I may not understand all of them, but every single one of those images is is true of me. I'm alive because God in his mercy, he cut out my heart of stone and he replaced it with a, a softened heart of flesh that beats for God. That's what circumcision means. Circumcision is this metaphor. It's not just a physical act. Circumcision actually becomes a metaphor for the way that God will come into the life of a person and take away their heart of stone that doesn't want anything to do with God and replace it with a heart of flesh. And so very early on in the life of Israel, Moses started speaking and he would say to the Israelites, you actually need to be circumcised, brothers and sisters, in your heart, not just in your body. Isn't that interesting? And actually, what's, this is actually my favorite image in the Bible, this idea of God cutting away hardened hearts because I feel like it's one of the most amazing things that can happen to someone. My favorite stories are the testimonies of faith. People will, will say they, they come and they're sitting in church just like you are, and as they're sitting in church, they realize my heart is so cold. My heart is so hard towards God. Maybe it's I'm afraid of God or, or I'm angry at God or I just don't believe in God or I've had a bad experience so I have all these layers of crusty hardness over my heart and I've, I'm, I'm avoiding God and I don't want anything to do with God or I'm, I'm actively sinning against God. And then as you sit in church, you begin to realize 
God is there with his chisel and he's just chipping away at that hardness. And then this moment where God takes away your heart of stone and gives you a heart that beats for God. Wonderful. That happened to you. Did you know that? Did you know that you have new life because you were united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection? That's what baptism means. Baptism is this powerful, symbolic thing that we do where a believer in Christ is lowered into the water, symbolizing their participation with Christ in his death on the cross. And they're raised out of the water, symbolizing their new life, their resurrection to new life. We talk about baptism all the time here. This is why you'll hear us saying regularly, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to get baptized. You need to get baptized. And you can take understanding baptism, which we'll be offering in just a month or so, because we never want anyone to do anything they don't understand. So we offer this class, Understanding Baptism, and you can learn all that baptism means. It's incredibly rich. If you've not been baptized, you, you need to get baptized, right? The Christian says, I've been made alive because Jesus literally took every single one of my sins and he nailed them to the cross. That's this imagery in verse 14 of this record of debt. You see it there? It's interesting language. Paul says there's this record of debt, all of your sins, everything that you owe God, God has just wiped it away and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus died for those things. This is why Paul Young is so dangerous. He doesn't even believe that's true. But that's why you have new life. And you have new life because Jesus triumphed over the, the forces of evil. They no longer can control you or condemn you or lead you astray. Jesus led them in open shame, verse 15. He, he led them in a display of public humiliation. And he just stacks up the imagery. And then the Christians reading this and they're realizing, this is all true about me because the gospel is true and the gospel has raised me to new life. So River West, if it doesn't have the power to raise the dead, it's not worth your time. It's not worth your time. Amen? Amen. I'm going to give you the third one. This one will just take a minute. It goes like this. Does this claim cause genuine believers to feel condemned? Does this teaching, does this podcast, does this book, does this ministry cause spiritually alive, born again, regenerated, genuinely saved believers to suddenly start to question their own salvation and feel, begin to feel judged or condemned? Because if it does, it's heretical and false and it's dangerous. It's dangerous. So let me show you that now in verses 15, 16 to 19. Here's how Paul says it. A couple warnings. You'll see it right away in verse 16. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on aestheticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. Not holding fast to Christ from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth 
that is from God. Paul says, don't let anyone judge you. Verse 16, did you notice that? That comes from the courtroom. Apparently there were people who had come into Colossae and they're saying to the Christians, actually, you should be a little bit worried about your salvation. And they were saying this to genuine believers, born-again followers of Jesus. In verse 18, he repeats the warning. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. That word comes from the world of athletics. It's, it's like the umpire who disqualifies the contestant because they broke the rules. And Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Did you know this is like the number one trick in the bag of every false teacher? They always start here. They always try to open up this little hole of doubt. And they get you thinking, well, wait a minute. Am I genuinely saved? Is Christ enough? Am I okay? They always start there, and they get you scratching your head and wondering. And they'll always do it the way they did it in Colossae. Either they'll tell you that you need to give up something that's morally neutral, food and drink, or they'll tell you you have to add something that's spiritually unnecessary like the practice of holy days, new moons, legalistic stuff. They'll they'll either say, you know, Christ is enough, yes, but you have to take this away. Or Christ is enough, but you have to add this. You have to legalistically practice the Sabbath or other holidays. And Paul will always say the same thing. If you have to add anything to Jesus, you've completely subtracted Jesus. You've, 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 You've gutted the gospel of all of its power. Isn't that true? When I was in Eugene and I was running Young Life down there, about 11 years ago, I had all these leaders. It was a college town, so so many of my leaders were college kids. And there was a false teacher who came into Eugene and he started setting up coffee dates with all of my Young Life leaders. I didn't know about it. And he was meeting with them one by one, and here's what he said to them. He said, if you do not speak in tongues, you are disqualified for leadership in ministry. And then he actually said, and actually, if you don't speak in tongues, there's actually a possibility that you're not even saved. So I had all these leaders coming to me and saying, oh my gosh, Adam, I didn't even know that I might not be saved. And I was having to say, the reason you didn't know that is because it's not true. It's not true. Here's a teacher who's saying, oh yes, Christ, but also you must add this. So dangerous. It's like being kidnapped away from Jesus and it's dangerous. And Paul says, church, I want you to grow in discernment. I want a church that's strong and healthy and wise and discerning, right? Aren't you glad that you get to be a part of a church like the one that Paul describes in verse 19? I want to close with this image because this is what Jesus is doing in our church. Did you know that every time we gather together, what's happening, Christ is the head of our family, our community, and we are like attached to one another, like ligaments attach a body. We're attached to Jesus. We're attached to one another. Aren't you glad you don't have to do this Christian life alone? Isn't that good news? You get to be a part of a family. Maybe you're thinking, I'm not that discerning. You know, I'm still growing in that. That's okay. That's why you have your brother and your sister on your left and right. That's why you're in the growth group that meets and studies the word. You could call your growth group leader and say, hey, I've been reading this blog. What do you think about this person? Or call one of the pastors. 
ladies, there are many bloggers in the, in the world that are, that are having a big impact on women in the Christian world. If you're reading a blog and you're starting to wonder, what, I, wonder what, I wonder what this person's really about, call Pastor Marianne and ask her what she thinks. I guarantee you she's got an opinion about it. It's Marianne Nowak, right? She has something to say, okay? Reach out to someone. Ask someone. The church is the place where Jesus grows people in maturity in Christ. So isn't it interesting that so many of the false teachers out there use medium where they actually encourage people to not be involved in their local congregation, conferences and things that are offline because they know people who are connected to Christ in a local community are probably growing in Christ. Aren't you glad you're a part of a church like that? I am. Good. This was intense. Are we still friends? Do we still love each other? Okay. Good. I want you to be encouraged. But you know what? More than being encouraged, you know what I really want? I want you to become wise. You, there is no substitute for your personal ability to discern truth from lies. So let's grow in this together. Can we do that? I'm going to say a prayer, and then we're going to worship together. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures. We pray that we would read our Bible more than we read our newsfeed. Pray that we would read your word more than we listen to the podcast. Pray that we would read your word more than we open up Instagram. It's a treasure. It tells us about Christ, your son. It leads us to the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It reminds us of the truth of the gospel, how we've been made alive. We thank you. Father, thank you for a church where you are the head, Lord Jesus, and and you're being exalted and we're growing in our understanding of who you are. May we continue to do that. Would you turn each and every one of us into discerning and humble and wise followers of Jesus, we pray. And now as we worship, may our hearts exalt in the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.